you are the authority. So you had touched on it a little bit just 30 seconds ago, right? You have to be, you have to drive the ship. If you're a startup, if you're a CEO, if you're an owner, if you're a director, that's your job. You need to steer the ship. But the funny thing is, is the captain says, go that way. There's a helmsman who actually steers said ship. And there's an engine crew that's driving the engines and, and maintenance and mechanics who are keeping those things ticking. You have to see the big vision. So you have to, you have to know what you know and know that you're an authority. But you also have to get very honest with yourself on what you don't know. And then what is it that it's okay not to know? And what is it that you need to get better at? Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups in the seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the CEO and founder of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, Tyler Foley. And to give you a quick introduction to Tyler, so um, was self-employed since the age of six and was paying his taxes since the age of six, which is always, hey, way to pay your or pay your taxes and pay your dues, um, but uh, also grew up in the arts. And then um, when he was 17, had a stroke and had to have about a year and a half of physical therapy, which uh, kind of crushed it, or at least at that time, crushed his dreams of acting. And so refocused him a bit on what he wanted to do. But uh, a period of time passed by, and he decided to went uh, full in and or full into the performing out arts. Did that till he was twenty five. Went into school, and I think uh, got a surveying degree. And you'll have to correct me where I'm wrong if that is. Or um, and then did a startup that was for mobile interior mapping. Um, was a bit too ahead of its time. It was a capital intensive and kind of was was ahead of its time in the marketplace. Um, so then uh, went or. That Eric shifted from that, uh, told his friend that or he was getting, or friend told him to get into safety consulting, started a new business and been doing that for six years. And then that will lead a bit of up to where he's at today. So with that much as an introduction, welcome on the podcast, Tyler. Thanks. Yeah, no, that was, that was pretty bang on Devin. That, that encompassed <laughs> the last 35 years nicely. All right. Well, then we could just go home and call it a day. No, just yeah. uh, just joking on that end. But I gave kind of that quick brief run through of your journey. But now let's take us back to, I guess, to six years old when you started to be self-employed and, uh, and pay taxes and tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, well, so and, and to be fair, I don't know that I, I was legally required to pay taxes until I was 18. Um, but I, I definitely had a, a SIN number here in Canada and was, you know, registered and a, and a social citizen and, and working. And I definitely was getting deducted at source for sure for a, a long while. Um, and that happened because I uh, got into um, theater and film and television at a very young age. When I was six years old, I, uh, my father passed away. And um, hmm. the, we were looking, we, my mom and my uncle were looking for kind of outlets for me just to kind of keep me on the straight and narrow and um, get me exposed to different things, keep me occupied, all the things that you would normally do with a six-year-old. But uh, I had a pension for the arts. So I had been in a couple of school plays, you know, little pageant stuff like the Christmas play. And, uh, and I think we did a, a thing around Easter and I played Peter Rabbit and stuff like that. And so they saw that I had this um, desire to perform. I really, really enjoyed it. I remember the very first time in that Christmas 
pageant, um, I got to play Joseph. And the, um, the three wise men came and gave me their gifts of gold, frankincense, and more. And each one was uh, wrapped in a, like a Christmas present because, you know, we're quite literal when you're six years old doing a school play. And so we took these gifts. And as I received these gifts from the wise men, I then gently and carefully placed them down on the head of baby Jesus in the cradle. And that made everybody laugh because <laughs> I didn't know any better. They were like, give it and you put it next to baby Jesus. And I was stacking it on this poor little doll's head. And uh, I remember the audience laughing every time I put it down. So then I started putting it down intentionally like that. And then they would laugh more. And I remember the joy that I felt with that. And that feeling has stuck with me ever since. I, I seek that out. I love it. I love interacting with an audience. It just, it brings me joy. So my mom and my uncle, uh, my uncle actually worked in, for the city of Calgary and um, right across from what was city hall for a long while, mm. the, is our fine arts uh, center. And he'd overheard a casting director complaining about how hard it was to find um, young, young children who could, you know, listen and behave and, and just mm. generally act like she's I remember her saying how hard is it to find a six-year-old right and uh he heard that and he was like well my nephew's six and he he loves being on stage what you know what's how do I do this so he ended up having a, a discussion with the casting director and she gave him hit her card and then he contacted my mom and next thing I knew I was auditioning and and I've been in theater ever since and then started to get into film and television when I was about 12 13 and uh, eventually moved out to Vancouver to do it with, as you mentioned, I, I did have a mini stroke at 17. I was at a fine arts high school at the time, my senior year. And New Year's Day, 1997, I woke up and I don't drink. Um, I, at least I really didn't. I did not drink at all um, in, up until I was probably about mid-30s. And now I'll have a social drink now and then it's not for no reason other than I just, I've never really liked the taste of alcohol. So I've just never really imbibed very much. Mm. So I was the DD on uh, new year's Eve. And I remember waking up being confused as to why I felt weird seeing as I hadn't done anything. I hadn't ingested anything into my body to make me feel weird. And it ends up, I had a, a small blockage. I, I uh, something had happened where I had a, a, a blockage, a pressure buildup in my head and it had caused a, a small stroke. Hmm. And I, in the morning when I tried getting out of bed, I couldn't make the left side of my body work. And I remember um, brushing my teeth, trying to, you know, just get ready for the day. And the toothpaste was just pouring out the side of my mouth and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't make it work. And it wasn't until I'd um, gotten out of the shower and it, showering was weird too. Like I had to stumble around. I couldn't make my leg or my arm really work very well. Hmm. And finally I got out. My mom looked at me and she said, Tyler, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know. And I, but I'm saying it like this. And then off to the hospital we went and, and I thought, I thought my career was over at that point. Right. Hmm. Cause when your whole goal for, 12 years has been leading towards you graduating from the Alberta high school of fine arts and moving on to, at the time, I thought I was going to go to LA or New York. 
and um, you know, be an actor and you're going to Broadway star and I'm going to sing and I'm going to dance. And I'm going to do all that fun stuff. And when your leg doesn't work and your face doesn't work, that, uh, that takes that away really mm. rapidly. And that was my only focus for a long while was how do I get back? And luckily I, um, I was surrounded by really supportive people an incredible medical team who uh, were dedicated to my rehabilitation. Um, a big, 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 big shout out to uh, Joanne Corbett, who worked with me three, four times a week doing laser acupuncture and um, physio and uh, chiropractic work and um, all kinds of different things to try and get uh, not only feeling back, but function back mm. to my face. Uh, and everyone else that had worked on me, but she, she was definitely a big part of that recovery. Hmm. And so, you know, I was able to move to Vancouver and, and make a real career of it. And so then now one um, question is before you, so yeah. you, before you moved to Vancouver, while you're dealing with the mini stroke, did you, you know, decide to abandon it or you put it on hold or you didn't know what to do or kind of did you start exploring other options? Because I mean, I, I certainly get if you had, you know, you only a partial or part, portion of your face is working and, you, you know, and only some of your limbs are working, it makes it difficult to do at least a typical acting career. And so as you're trying to get into that and figure out what to do, did you say, hey, I'm going to put this on hold? Hey, I'm abandoning it on hold. I don't know. It's too soon. Or kind of how did you kind of deal with that as you were as you were going through that? Um, I was, I, uh, first of all, there was never a plan B. Uh, I think Will Smith has a really famous quote about it. Uh, forget about plan B. It only distracts from plan A. Mm. Um, and I, I knew that if I had to, I was going to specialize, right. I would play the roles of maybe, you, you know, find some, some, some way there's always a role. There's always a role. Mm. Um, it just, they would have been fewer and more far between if I couldn't have gotten my mobility back, if I couldn't have gotten my face back, hmm. but there was always a rule. So I was always still working on my craft. I never stopped working on my craft. What I did was double down. So I had one doctor tell me that it was just how it was and it was just going to be that way. And I had another doctor say that I had the potential for recovery, but given the damage that I probably wouldn't. And then I met Joe and she said, I've never known anybody to be hundred percent right. And I can't predict what'll happen, but these are the things that we can do that if you can recover, hmm. this will speed your recovery. And uh, one of the nice things about her was she, she has many, 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 many degrees. And she has studied medicine in multiple disciplines. And she believes in a very holistic approach to healing. And I don't mean that in the, um, you know, chiropractic or Eastern medicine way, although she does practice those things, she believes in a whole body approach. So if you're going to heal the body, uh, that includes the mind. So we really had to work on my mindset, make sure that I was committed to recovery, that I could see a path. Um, there's a, a really fun saying that I've, I've just discovered, you have to be it to see it, not the other way around. A lot of people think that you need to be able to uh, see a thing and then eventually your body will believe that thing. And that's not the case. In order for you to be able to see that come to fruition, you have to already believe your body. So I believed that I was 100% healthy. Hmm. I just needed my body and mind to catch up. So, so now, I embraced. Hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I just, that was, just, it was a mindset that I embraced. And so now, uh, so a you, lot of you, that due to the help that I got from Joanne and Robert Corbett and a couple of other people. So now, and, and I think that's, an, it's a, an awesome testament to, you know, perseverance and working through it and great, you know, great at people that are, you surround yourself with and be able to kind of make that comeback. And it sounds like now you did, you got, went through rehab, you're able to make it at least, you know, a, a, a full recovery. And then you were going out doing acting, performing arts, and then you did that for a period of time. And then what was the, you know, and I think you mentioned that you did that till it was around 25 years old. Yep. And then what was the reason or the motivation at 25 to kind of switch and go get the, or go back to school and get the degree? Uh, well, a couple of things. So from the time I was six years old, being on stage and being in film and television was fun. Hmm. Um, it brought me joy. It was, I mean, it's a cool thing, right? When you get to say that you're a professional actor, you get to show up on set. Um, you know, there's so, it's just fun. You get to hang out at the crafty table, meet people you'd never have normally thought you would meet. Um, I, I, I got to jam in my trailer with William H. Macy and sit mm. across a diner table from Dame Helen Mirren. You know, I, I got to be shown at the Golden Globes when Dame Helen Mirren won her Golden Globe the clip of us at the diner scene was what was shown like that. Like those are just really cool things that other people wouldn't normally get to experience. And I'm so blessed to have done it, but at about 25, it, it became a job. Hmm. And I remember getting calls and, and, you know, you have this audition and I, at the time I was commuting, um, I had been living in Vancouver, but uh, a girlfriend of a long-term relationship that I was in for a long while, and I had moved um, to the interior of BC. So it was like a three, three and a half hour commute for me to get in for an audition, which I was happy to do, right? As an actor, you're, you're, you might have a couple of auditions a week, sometimes not at all. And living in the Okanagan was beautiful because it's, it's you know, a vacation destination place anyways. And it just, it was, it was fun. Mm -hmm. But I remember um, going in for an audition uh, and then driving back and I was probably an hour outside of the city, the uh, Greater Vancouver Regional District, the GVRD. Mm. And driving on the number one highway, about to take the split off um, to take the Crow's Nest Pass. And I was just about to lose cell reception. And all of a sudden, my cell pinged off. And it was my agent saying, hey, I've got an audition for you. Um, or it might have even been a callback, actually. Like, I had gone in an audition, and then they wanted to see me again. But they wanted to see me, like, that day. And she's like, and they, they want you back in the next hour. And I'm like, it'll take me an hour and a half with traffic and everything just to get there. She's like, we'll get there. And I remember in that moment being like, I'd rather just go hang out on the beach. Mm. And as soon as I realized that, I was like, oh, you need to take a step back, Tyler. You need to, what's your priority? Why, where did the joy go? Why is this, why did you have this attitude? And so I really looked and I, and I analyzed it and I had stopped having fun about six months prior. Hmm. And I thought, well, you know, at the time too, like at 25, like that was, if I hadn't made it by 25, I wasn't going to make it. It was the mentality that I had in my head. And I'm like, nobody knows me. And to this day, you, you Google my name and I come up on IMDB and I have a whole bunch of film credits, but nobody knows me. You know, hmm. they popped up. Nobody went, oh, Tyler Foley's on Devin's podcast. Oh my goodness. Ah, right. Like nobody, hmm. no, nobody cares. And uh, so 
I, I had to step back and I had to really analyze what do I want? Like, what are some of the things that are priorities to me? And mm. my father being an educator. Um, and at that point, I hadn't pursued any higher education, but I'd made a lot of money in film and television. So I'm like, what am I going to do with this, with this cash? Mm. And I decided, well, invest in yourself. Um, what, what interests you? And my uncle was a photogrammetrist, which is a very fancy way of saying that he makes maps with pictures. My other uncle is a cartographer, which is a very pretty way of saying that he makes maps by drawing. Um, my grandfather was a surveyor for a small amount of time. Um, my other uncle did um, uh, sonar work. Um, uh, I can't remember the fancy word for ocean sonar. Um, with the Canadian military. So like I, I had this background and, and a general understanding. And so I thought, well, let's go back and, and do geomatics, which is just, again, fancy way of saying surveying. So I went, it's an engineering discipline. So it's an engineering degree with a specialty in geomatics and earth study. And I went back and, and I learned how to make pretty maps with pictures. And that, that kind of transitioned me out of acting for a very long while. So now, and so you went back, you, you got the, the degree, you know, said, okay, it's taking a step back. If, you know, in your mind, if you hadn't made it by 25, you're not going to make it. And what, I have no idea if that's true. I assume that there are actors that made it after 25, but I have no idea. Um, Hundreds. But, you know, but, you know, so you, you do all that and you go get the degree. And then I think you, after you got the degree, you got, you got into a startup to do uh, mapping uh, mobile or mobile mapping of interiors. And uh, yeah. you said that was a bit ahead of your, uh, ahead of its time. 10 years, 10 years ahead of its time easily. So when I was going through school, I, again, one of the things that I've always sought out in my entire life and learned from being in theater is always find a mentor, find somebody who is better than you, who can coach you and guide you along. And uh, I found an incredible woman, very, very well respected within the industry. Uh, both of my uncles knew her by name and said, if you get a chance to work with her, go and do. And um, and I don't know, I must have impressed her somehow because she was uh, pretty um, hermited when it came to her craft. Like she had her business and this was what she wanted to do. But I, I'd reached out to her and said, listen, I'd love to work with you. If you have anything that we could partner up on, I'd love to uh, learn and explore with you. And she agreed. She brought me down to her office, um, interviewed me, asked me some really tough questions. I think what um, impressed her the most was she asked me a couple of questions and I flat out told her I have no idea. Hmm. And it, that was one of my biggest lessons. When you don't know, don't try to fake it. Just say, I don't know. Um, because there's a lot more respect in that. That's authentic. That's honest. And people, if you don't know people, people know if you know, or don't, and if you try to make it up, they know that you're making it up and then they don't want to work with you. And hmm. I, I remember telling her, she asked me, I think how to calculate scale from a photograph. I hadn't learned it yet. I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know how you would calculate a flight path. And then she was like, oh, well, you do this. And I was like, and she goes, do you understand why? And I said, oh, no, that makes sense. Because, you know, if you take the focal length and blah, blah, blah. And I explained it back to her. And then she knew that she could teach and coach me. And uh, so I ended up getting the job with her. And she was tired of looking at the ground from 20,000 feet in the air over hundreds and thousands of photographs. And we had all this equipment and we had access to um, some really, really 
innovative and new technologies. And uh, one of the things that we had access to was the uh, IMU, which is the inertial measurement unit. It's a little gimbal that can basically tell orientation. We had access to the one that they use in the Scud missiles to um, guide them in. <laughs> and uh, so we had to get top secret clearance, but we built this cart um, in conjunction with a really, really, really uh, well-known survey firm and help them with their research and design. And we had this cart that you could, that had LIDAR in it, which is laser measure, measurement. And we had that from our planes because we were taking LIDAR from the air. And we said, well, what if you mounted it on the cart? And then what if you put in this inertial measurement unit and a GPS unit so that you could find out where you are on the earth with the GPS unit, which needs to see the satellites. And then when you move inside, you lose the satellites, but we have this IMU that will continue to tell us where we are. And we'll have this, these lasers that measure how far everything is from the walls. And then we'll put on this camera on the top because we already are taking pictures. We already know how to do it. And we will make photogrammic, photogrammetric accurate layouts of the interiors of buildings so that people can use it for insurance or whatever they want. And we would like, everybody can use this. Mm. So $10 million later, nobody used it. <laughs> hmm. The technology was so expensive and it was so hard for us to scale it because we had one cart and us as a team and, and trying to offset the cost of it. Like we just, there was no scalability of that. And, uh, and then further complicated, um, my business partner passed away uh, very, very suddenly two and a half years into the venture and everything was in her name and we didn't have the right director's insurance in place to have a transition uh, to me. And so literally my whole 10-year plan evaporated overnight, uh, just like that, by not having the right protections in place and being a little bit ahead of time. So, you know, it, it was all gone. So, no, and I, I mean, in one sense, it's, it's easy to get excited about the technology and a lot of things and, and be able to be almost ahead of your time. And it's always that difficult nature of timing the market as to when it makes sense from when the market's going to accept it to entering into it and everything else. So definitely makes sense how you can get have a really cool technology, do a lot of things. And then, you know, the market isn't ready for it yet. And then you're kind of caught there. So now as you're going through that and you're figuring out, okay, this money's gone and took the investment. It's not going to work. Market's not ready. It's not going to accept it. Then kind of how did, or where did you go from there? And how did you get into uh, safety consulting? So um, as part of what we were doing, so our primary, we were trying to push everything into that mobile mapping which by the way now if you look every realtor in america has a guy who comes in and does this mobile scan and does 3d walkthroughs for realtors just so you know so i was i was right <laughs> you're right you were way, just early way too early on that bell curve um but uh our primary client because we were still a traditional photogrammetric firm we were still flying planes i had a fleet of three planes that we were sending out um, and uh, cameras and LIDAR and all the rest of that, our primary client was the government. And the government here has a um, program called CORE, and you need to have this certificate of recognition, which is just a way of proving that you've developed a safety system. Mm. And in order to do that, you need certain amount of training. And so in order to uh, be a a client of the government, you have to learn all the safety stuff. And so when the business collapsed, 
my uh, buddy who's in construction, a, a really, really good businessman and owns his own electrical firm, his firm was blowing up. Like he'd gone from a small mom and pop uh, operation of about 12 employees up to almost 200 over the course of a couple of years. And he had gotten this big oil and gas contract. And as part of the contract, he needed to have full on-time safety. And he's like, well, Tyler, you've done all that, all the core training, right? And I said, yeah. He's like, you know, if you take these two more classes, you can become a national construction safety officer. No. He's like, if I pay for the classes, will you come and work for me? Okay. <laughs> so that's what we did. He paid for me to go and upgrade these two classes. I think it cost him 300 bucks. Hmm. And I go and I take these two classes and all of a sudden now I have this designation, this national construction safety officer designation, and I get shipped up to the oil sands and uh, help with building this camp. And just, I was suddenly exposed to a new world that I actually understood a lot because when I was in Vancouver, I used to do a lot of stunt work. Hmm. And so everything that I'd learned doing stunts all of a sudden translated to to safety it was all safety and i was like oh no i get that we do that yeah that, that engineering control that's like you know when we did this in stunts and we had a decelerator or oh yeah no substitution that's like using a stunt guy instead of the star so that it, you know you're mitigating risk and all of these things came together very cohesively for me and and then on top of it uh, hopefully your audience can tell i'm charming and articulate <laughs> and I'd like to think I'm at least a little bit smart, mm. but I have an ability to communicate to different stakeholders. So I have a real easy time getting into a flow, talking to the trades guys, being one-on-one -on -one and buddy, buddy. But I also have an ability to really smarten up and have educated conversations with stakeholders, CEOs, um, the C-suite, the executives, management. And so I have, I, suddenly found an incredible niche for myself because I was all now I was the go-to I was the person who could translate hmm. and that's a big part of safety is just making sure that processes are understood and followed and uh, so yeah the the career just spun from there so what looked like a tragedy at the beginning with the collapse of the business actually became one of my uh, biggest freeing moments because now I'm able to do this and I have a lot more time freedom than what I would have had if I was still running the survey company. Hmm. So now, you know, you know, it's always interesting how, you know, sometimes you're looking at what, uh, what is a failure, or at least appears to be a failure and, and, you know, and you tend to focus on the negative because, you know, you feel like you failed and you're, you're having to recover. And yet there's opportunities that lie in, in lieu of that or because of that, that sets you up for something greater now. So now taking us full circle, um, where does that leave you today? Or, you know, are you still doing the safety consulting? Did you go somewhere else? Have you, where's your journey led up till today? Um, so now I, what I found is my passion and my drive within the safety was the actual training. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the training that I ended up doing had nothing to do with safety itself. It had everything to do with communication. So a lot of people would be like that, you know, I would used to run a lot of what they call toolbox meetings, which are just meetings in the morning to prep people for what they're going to do in the day. And everybody would look forward to mine which I thought was funny because most people get glazed over. They're like, oh, think of a board meeting, right? Or any other meeting that you have to go to in any given point of the day. It's just a mm -hmm. kickoff meeting and nobody enjoys them. 
but I like to make mine entertaining and, and, and they were engaging. And a lot of people would ask, well, why and how? And I'd be like, oh, well, it's real easy. I don't know if you noticed, but I don't talk in them. And they're like, what? I'm like, I don't talk in them. I get you guys to talk. And they're like, oh yeah, no, I guess. And, you know, I started applying a lot of these principles that I'd learned in performance and acting and a lot of the business principles that I'd learned through my degree and running the business to teaching these mid-level, usually supervisors and lower uh, middle management, how to more effectively communicate to their labor force so that it wasn't boring, so that they weren't being tuned out. Hmm. And that has migrated me back to a lot of work on stage. So now I still have the safety company, but I have uh, you know, uh, contract auditors who go out and do the auditing for me. And I have a lot of really 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 good admin staff who kind of keep everything going and now i'm really really hands off on the business i don't have a lot to do with it other than checking in with my people uh once or twice a month to make sure that you know if they need any contract negotiation or if they need any support and then where my primary focus is is on safety training making sure that people are getting the training that they need that require, because that's where my passion is, because now I'm helping people help themselves. And I've uh, pivoted. I took all of that. Everybody kept asking me how I do it, how I do it, how I do it. And I, it pivoted into the, the book, which is a number one bestseller now. So I wrote a book, The Power to Speak Naked. And that made it uh, just a lot easier for me to do that. And from that, now I'm going and teaching public speaking, showing people how to not only do it from a safety perspective, but what is your jam, right? You want to talk IP law? How do I make that engaging for people? You want to talk about your MLM? Well, how do we make that engaging for people? You want to talk whatever. I, a good friend of mine has an absolute passion for octopuses before that Netflix movie came out. And we worked together so that he could grow his audience talking about octopuses and finding other people in the planet who like octopus. I don't know. <laughs> no, I like that example. And I think that's a, a cool journey that into where you've led up to today. So that kind of brings us full circle on, you know, kind of where your journey's led to. So now we'll kind of transition and uh, jump to a couple of questions. I always ask at the end of each podcast. Before we dive into those, just as a reminder to listeners, we are going to have the bonus question where we chat a little bit about intellectual property as well. So just stay tuned for that if you're interested in hearing a little bit about that. Otherwise, as we do the, the last couple of questions, um, first question I always ask is along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what'd you learn from it? Uh, not having director's insurance and not, not reaching out to professionals like yourself who can guide us. Like get a lawyer, get an accountant. They are expensive, but your ROI on that is... is not even 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times to be set up properly at the beginning so that you can continue your journey no matter what um, is, is invaluable. And mm. I'm, I'm lucky in that now I know that and I've, I've found a team and, and I invested up front um, a lot of money in a really good lawyer and a really good accountant mm. and, um, and then found some really good mentorship along the way. No, I like that. And I think, you know, the, the problem you always get into with a lot of entrepreneurs and startups and, you know, founders and co-founders, and I'm absolutely guilty of it. You think you know everything or you think you're the smartest guy in the room or you think you can figure it out or you can Google it or whatnot. Sometimes that's true. And, you know, if you didn't have that ability, you wouldn't 
you can't hire experts in every area that you can ever think of because you have to become an expert or be knowledgeable, nor do you have the funding as you know, as a lot of times. But I think when you hit those critical areas where you do need that insurance, you do need that expertise, you do need that mentorship, reaching out and getting that feedback and getting that guidance can save you a lot of heartache and make oftentimes a difference and where the business does well or where it doesn't. Yeah, it's a hard investment up front, but it pays off in the long run. Absolutely. So now we'll jump to the second question, is, which is if you're getting, if you're talking to someone that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? You are the authority. So you had touched on it a little bit just 30 seconds ago, right? You have to be, you have to drive the ship. If you're a startup, if you're a CEO, if you're an owner, if you're a director, that's your job. You need to steer the ship. But the funny thing is, is the captain says, go that way. There's a helmsman who actually steers said ship. And there's an engine crew that's driving the engines and, and maintenance and mechanics who are keeping those things ticking. You have to see the big vision. So you have to, you have to know what you know and know that you're an authority. But you also have to get very honest with yourself on what you don't know. And then what is it that it's okay not to know? And what is it that you need to get better at? And doing that gap analysis and doing it quickly, but resting in your authority. If you have this vision, you want to be the world's greatest baker because that's your passion. That's great. And if you know gastronomy better than anyone else, good, live in that space. And if you don't know marketing, find your marketer. But you have to know that you are the authority because that's when you can really live in your essence. I, I say it in the book. Um, authenticity is synonymous with self-awareness. You can't be an authentic person if you don't know who you are. And I see, and I, we all know it. Human beings have a BS radar for it. You know when somebody's pretending. You just feel it innately in your gut. So to avoid that, don't try to be somebody you're not. Go back to you know when I was having my first interview with Jan and she asked, do you know how to do this? And I said, no, no, I don't. And be okay with that. No, I love that. And I think that is absolutely great advice and definitely uh, one people can take to heart and learn from. So, well, as we, before we jump to the bonus question, as we wrap up the normal portion of the podcast, if people want to reach out to you, they want to find out more, they want to hire you as a client, a consultant, they want to be an investor, an employee, your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out and find out more? Best thing they can do is go to SeanTylerFoley.com. So it's Sean, S-E-A-N, spelled the right way, like Connery. S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y.com. SeanTylerFoley.com. And if they want anybody who's going over there right now, uh, if public speaking is a thing that they want to get into, if they want to really be able to grow their business through using the power of their voice, finding their authentic uh, story, uh, learning how to really sell without selling, I've got... Um, a uh, little free download for everybody on there. Just click on the upper right corner. It's called The Method. It'll give you the five insider tips that I have uh, from 35 years of experience learning how to teach people how to public speak. Awesome. Well, I definitely encourage people to reach out, check out uh, the website, check out the book that you wrote and, and everything and all, uh, all the above. Well, if uh, for, thank you again for coming on. 
Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you'd like to tell or to share it on the podcast, feel free to apply to be on the show. Go to inventiveguest.com. Two more things as listeners. One, in your podcast player, make sure to click subscribe so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so new people can find out about all the awesome episodes. Last but not least, if you ever need, uh, have any questions about patents, trademarks, or anything else, feel free to reach out to us at Miller IP Law by going to strategymeeting.com and grabbing some time to chat. So now with that, as we wrap up the normal portion of the episode, I always love the, the bonus uh, bonus section when we or when we ask those questions um, because we get to flip the table a bit and chat about something that I certainly enjoy and am passionate about, which is intellectual property. So with that, I'll go ahead and switch gears a bit, turn it over to you and uh, ask or let you ask, what's your uh, top intellectual property question? Well, so right now I have a lot of balls in the air, um, particularly I'm, you know, I've got the book out. I've got a series of training uh, videos and webinars and online content. And we do uh, seminars when we're allowed to do seminars. Um, I, you know, we have a two and a half day seminar, a five day workshop. We've got masterminds that run. I have a lot of intellectual property. So um, what do I need to know as far as that intellectual property lifestyle um, or lifespan? Like, where am I in that life cycle? And what's, what do I need to know? What, what needs to be copywritten? What needs to be trademarked? Do I need to be worried about patents at this point? What, walk me through, help me. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a good question. And maybe as a level set, just to, you know, kind of what is intellectual property or what are those three things? Because that's a lot of times where you'll, you'll want to start to focus on, which, you know, the first one is patents go towards invention, something that has a functionality. It's a device, it's software, it's hardware, it's mechanical in nature. Any of those are going to be patents. If you go to trademarks, it's going to be more in their branding. So name of a company, a logo, a catchphrase, a, you know, name of a product, something that is going to be in branding is going to go on their trademarks. And the last one is going to be in their copyrights. That's going to be more on the creative side. So a book, a podcast, a sculpture, a painting, a video, all those are going to fall under copyrights. And so, you know, kind of as generally when you're looking at it, first of all, understanding what, you know, which do you have? Do you have patents? You had, did you invent anything? If not, then don't worry about patents because you haven't created anything. Vice versa, if you created a, a really good invention, you don't never created anything that's creative side, then don't worry about a copyright. So kind of figuring out, first of all, what is it that you, which areas that you fall into and then the other thing you'll get into is, you know, there's a lot, as with a lot of things, you can get it, you can dive into a lot of intellectual property, you can get a lot of broad coverage. And you, a lot of times when you're at least earlier on in a business and you're growing and you're, you know, you don't have infinite amount of money and you always have more things to spend money on than money to spend, then I would start to look more at, you know, what are the areas that are critical to the business? Is it the brand? Are we really creating a great brand that people are going to follow and they're going to like? And so that's what we want to protect, whether it's a name or the, you know, a logo or something that, or is it really the content? Is it really, hey, yeah, there's a brand, but what it really is, is we have a great content uh, generation. We got viral videos and on YouTube and, you know, those type of things where we got a great book and we want to protect that or we want it, we've created a great invention. So I would start out by understanding what, what are the intellectual properties, which categories you fit into, and then say, which ones are the most critical to our business? Start there and then start to work your way out from most critical to great to have or broader coverage, but aren't critical to the business. So that's kind of how I would uh, dive in or start, or start out to understand all of that. And is there any way to check for uh, copyrights and trademarks? 
Um, yeah, you can do a, a trademark search. You can either have an attorney uh, do it for you. You can also go to the trademark database and they do have a database where you can go search and see what other people have trademarked. You know, it's a bit more nuanced and people oftentimes grab at in the sense that, you know, there is different categories and what is, or how similar do they have to be before they're too similar and create issues. And so, but you can start out either as yourself or hire an attorney and do, or do a trademark search. Copyrights are a bit different in the sense that they, when you file a copyright, you get a light, you basically register with the Library of Congress. They don't do any examination. They just take what you submitted. They'll put it as part of the Library of Congress or at least digitally now, and then it will be cataloged. So you can search some of it, but it's a lot more difficult to see unless you specifically know where to look and what you're looking for. So that one is a bit of a more hit or miss. Um, you're better to, so if you have something you're specifically looking at, you can search. Otherwise, um, you're just going to go out and probably do more of a general search to see if somebody's already created it. Perfect. All right. Well, with that, great questions. Always fun to chat a little bit about uh, intellectual property and appreciate you coming on and asking it. If you or or any of the listeners or audience ever have any questions on intellectual property, you want to chat one-on-one, make sure to go to strategymeeting.com and grab some time to chat. And otherwise, uh, we'll wrap up there and appreciate you coming on the podcast, Tyler, and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thank you, Devin.